You need to be Lord of their life. Maybe some have already done that, and they need to follow you into the baptism waters this morning. God, they need to proclaim that publicly to you and to those in this room that they're identifying with Jesus, and they are a blood-bought son or daughter. That they proclaim faith this morning. The old would die. They would be raised to walk in life with you. God, we pray this in your name this morning. Amen. Amen. Church, I want to take us to Ephesians 4. And I just want to read the first few verses here this morning for us. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. So this is Paul writing again. He's also writing the letter to the Ephesians from prison. Just as he is the letter to the Philippians. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Therefore, there is one body... One spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, this is a different letter that Paul is writing to a different group of people, but he's saying the same things. He's talking about bearing with one another in love, to be in partnership together, to have joy in Christ in all humility, right? We've seen these things in Philippians. He says there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, before we read the verses that we're actually going to look at this morning, we have to understand them in the context of what Paul is saying here. And he's talking about unity. He's talking about unity. Listen, if you don't understand that that's the context that we're in this morning, then when we look at verses 11 and 12, that is going to mess everything up. Okay? You're like, what in the world is he talking about? We're going to get there, all right? Some of you maybe already jumped ahead. Some of you maybe know verse 11 and 12. But we have to understand them in the context of unity, all right? Specifically in the unity of Christ. Now, I want to do something that we do a couple times a year here at Restoration Church before we dig into those verses, all right? A couple times a year, usually once in the spring and once in the fall, we introduce to you uh, our elders and deacons so that you remember who's tasked with the responsibility of shepherding and leading you, all right? Um, so you've seen Sean this morning. Sean was up here leading us in worship. Sean's still standing up, so uh, Sean serves as, a, as an elder, <clears throat> All right, you've seen Brad, but he wasn't standing up. He was sitting down at the drums. So Brad, stand up so everybody knows who you are. Brad serves as an elder here and then myself. The three of us together make up the elder team here at Restoration Church. And we take very seriously the responsibility to care for your souls. To shepherd you and to walk with you. 
Now, what I want you to understand in the context of unity is that that doesn't put the three of us outside of this body. You see, we're equally a part of this body, just like you are. So just like you are a part of this body, I'm a part of this body and submit to the other elders to shepherd my heart and to care for my soul. We do this together in unity, right? And then we have uh, others who come alongside of us who serve in the office of deacon to help us uh, lead and care for you in that way. Uh, Kyle is serving as one of our deacons. They're out of town this weekend, so you get his pretty face on the screen and not his person in front of you. Kyle serves as a deacon, which means he's tasked with the responsibility of being in the mess with you and helping to fight for unity amongst the church. And currently, because of seasons of life and things that have happened in the course of Restoration Church, Kyle's the only deacon that we have serving right now. So as we walk through this text this morning, we talk about unique callings in ministry. I really want you to search your heart and ask if the Lord is calling you to step into a specific type of ministry. Maybe it, maybe it is, men, to step into an elder role here at Restoration Church. Men or women, maybe he's calling you to step into a role of servanthood in the office of deacon. We want you to consider those things, and here's why. Look at verse 11. And he, being God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Like, that's great. I have no idea what that means. Well, let me tell you what APEST is. APEST is a sweet little acrostic that comes from apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. Now, let me tell you that verse 11 has been understood and applied in, I think, some really unhealthy ways in churches across our nation. Let me tell you that sometimes this verse is looked at as specific gifts that are given to specific people. And here's why. Because in verse 7, Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, part of you in this room are like, wait a minute, why do only men get gifts? Can I tell you that the majority of the time that you see the word men or man in Scripture translated into the English word that we know, it's referring to mankind. The general human population. You see the Greek word that Paul uses right there, and he gave gifts to men is male and female. He's talking about mankind. Gifts are given to all who follow Jesus. 
says, great, I have no idea what I've been gifted with. Well, let's figure that out. There are other places in the scripture where Paul writes and he talks about specific giftings. But listen to me. We have to understand this in the context of unity. You see, here when Paul says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, he's talking about groups of individuals who have specific roles and responsibilities but are still part of the body. You see, the way that this has been applied unhealthily in other places is that these particular people are the only ones who have received certain types of giftings and are the only ones who are to be the leaders within the church. And so you start referring to people based on those titles. Did you know, I'm going to blow somebody's mind this morning, did you know that the most common English word used to refer to the office of elder in the present culture in evangelical churches as the word pastor. Did you know that? You're like, yeah, I knew that. Wow, didn't blow my mind. It's great. Did you know that pastor is the least common word used in Scripture to reference the office of elder? So you didn't know that. So we've taken a word that seems really comfortable for us and we've used it to reference a title that oftentimes the scripture doesn't actually use that word. You see the better translation is what we see here in verse 11. It's translated as shepherd. As shepherd. You're like, man, that'd be really weird if we ran around and said, hey, there's shepherd Brad. You're right, it would be weird. But it's also weird to take a verb and make it a noun. Did you know that? You see, the, the word pastor, shepherd, is actually a, a duty. It's a responsibility to compassionately guide those to the good shepherd, Jesus. So when we look at verse 11 and we understand this APEST model, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, we need to understand them as groups of people, not as individuals and not as giftings, okay? Because there are lots of giftings that you would want to see evident in those who are maybe a part of some of these groups, right? You don't want somebody serving as a teacher who actually can't communicate in front of a group of people. That would be a really bad teacher. You're like, yeah, I've sat in a classroom sometimes with some of those. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Now let me tell you how this applies here at Restoration. Okay? This isn't something we talk about publicly a lot, but when we have leaders move into particular roles within the church, not just elder and deacon, but staff roles, ministry roles, we, we ask them to take a, an APEST assessment. We want to know which, which group do they kind of naturally fall into based on the way that God has gifted and wired them, right? You saw four on the screen just a moment ago, right? 
three elders, a deacon, and you're looking at this APES model, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, now be honest with me. You're like, I know which group those guys fall into, right? Did you know that the primary group of apostle is actually Brad and Kyle? It's not me. You see, I land more on the prophet side. You're like, what's the difference? Okay, listen to me. There are no big A apostles today. Okay, little A apostle. We're not talking about the 12 that were called to walk with Jesus who were referred to as apostles, right? We're not talking about the apostle Paul. Okay, we're talking about little A apostles who are wired in such a way that they lead. They lead. They lead in very specific ways. They're organized in certain ways. Prophets, listen to me. You're like, oh yeah, I'm going to get this. Prophets are those who look at the scripture and say, that's what the scripture says. Why aren't you doing it? Like, oh, Eric, that makes a little bit more sense. Did you know that Anna fits in that category too? So I'm not talking about the gift of prophecy. I'm talking about being a group of prophetic people who see and understand the scriptures and want to lead you to apply it to your life the way that it's meant to be applied. There's also a group of evangelists. Right? This, is, this is one that commonly gets talked about a lot in the American church, right? And you've probably heard it said this way. I just don't have the gift of evangelism. That may be true. You may not be gifted in evangelism, but did you know that you're commanded to evangelize? See, oftentimes we use the gifts that we haven't been given as excuses to disobey commands. But let me tell you about this group of evangelists. You see, these are the ones who are just naturally kind of bent towards advertising, right? You're like, oh, yeah, I know, I know who's going to fall into this, right? I'm not talking about advertising like in the sense of trying to sell something. I'm talking about advertising in the sense that they just always find themselves talking about this particular thing, right? They always find themselves in every conversation leaning towards talking about the gospel, leaning towards talking about the church that they're a part of, leaning towards the, the small group that they're a part of, and just, you know what? Maybe it's wrong in their setting, but they're just so convinced that that's the best thing to know and the best thing to be a part of that they want everybody that they come in contact with to be a part of. Do you know whose primary leaning towards evangelists is in the leadership of our church? The next mayor of Adel, Bart. <laughs> Have you ever seen Bart at Sweet Corn Festival? Like he's walking around shaking everybody's hand. And he's always talking about the thing that he's a part of, right? And he wants people to be a part of it. Did you know that's the primary leaning for Elizabeth too? She wants people to be a part of this thing that she's a part of. Shepherds. Shepherds are those who really just sit in the mess. 
Regardless of what's going on, like they, they, just, they really compassionately love and care for people and just want to walk them through the mess, right? We, we've talked about this before. You, you've seen the picture of the sheep or the, the, sometimes it shows up in a video, right? The sheep falls into the ditch. The shepherd goes in and gets it out, right? And then puts it up into the pasture and the sheep turns around and runs right back into the ditch, right? The shepherd just keeps going into the ditch to get them. You know who does that primarily in our church? It's Sean. Sean loves to just compassionately lead people. Teachers. Teachers are those who look at the scriptures, who understand concepts and ideas, and they, they want people to understand the same information, right? They, they want to help you connect the dots. You know who leans primarily towards that group? It's Leslie, right? Here's what I want you to see in all of that. Is that all of the people that we have serving in specific roles within the life of our church are unique in giftings, in callings, and roles that we've been given. But we are equally part of the same body that is seeking to work together for God's glory. We're not trying to lead in such a way that one person is elevated above another person. We're trying to lead together in unity, understanding that we're unique in the ways that we've been gifted and wired and called to do certain things. And so we want to do that together. We want to work together in, watch this, partnership. We want to work together in partnership. So what does this work look like? Look at verse 12. Paul says that these groups of individuals have been given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So let's talk about a theology of work. Many of us see the word work and it brings up just a bad taste in your mouth, right? Maybe not the physical labor of the work, but just the place where you work, right? The the noun work. Because you've identified the word work, which is an action verb, with a particular place, right? A particular building or a particular task or even particular people that are connected to that. But here's what I want us to understand in a theological perspective. Did you know that work came before sin? You see, if you go back to the book of Genesis, God molded and shaped Adam in his own likeness, right? Molded and shaped Adam in his own image and likeness. And before Eve was created, what did he tell Adam to do? To name the animals and to work and keep the garden. To cultivate the garden, to actually care for it and take care of it. You see, when sin entered in, that's not when the task of work became evident. Work was there before. Now that sin has entered in, when you try to work, creation works against you. Yes, that's why I sweat when I try to mow the yard. Like, How great would it be if you could mow the yard and not sweat? Wouldn't that be awesome? 
Wouldn't it be great if you just went tomorrow to your place of employment and you did the work, the task that are laid out in front of you and nothing went wrong? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be great if you went to your place of employment and no one that you worked with got on your nerves? You see, because of sin, it's affected the way that we work. But the command to work came before the fall. So if you miss that, and you think about work in the context of what you know currently, right? You know that it's broken. You know that creation works against you. You know that certain tasks are more difficult than others. You know that things don't always go the way you thought they would go or the way that you desire for them to go. If you start thinking of it in that way, then when you read in the scripture certain commands that God wants you to do, you start thinking of them in negative ways. Right? That's how you end up thinking that Christianity is just a list of do's and don'ts. Because we miss the fact that work was before sin, and that's the way that God has created us. See, he's created us to work and to have certain responsibilities. So here in this text, Paul is talking about these specific groups of people that God has gifted to the church. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what I want you to see is I want you to to circle the word equip and the word work. Okay? Because when you think about the word equip, you could also use the word train or prepare. You see, there, there are things that you have to train on. There's things that you have to prepare to do the work. You agree? There's a specific task that I have to get done, but I need to train and prepare to complete that task. Those two words go together here. And then I want you to circle the word saints and the word ministry. I'm going to tell you in a minute just how those tie together. God has gifted these specific groups to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I want to talk about ministry for just a moment. Okay, I think we have falsely identified in America that ministry is the professional task that those who are paid by the local church are responsible to do. Which means that we can indirectly begin to think and believe sitting in these seats that the person who's responsible to do the ministry of Restoration Church is who? Me, right? And others who are paid to do certain things, right? Ministry is actually about caring for the people that God has put in front of you. Ministry is not about certain tasks. It's about people. And people are, listen to me, people are not projects. 
that you run down a conveyor belt and when they get to the end result that you want, you discard them and send them out and now move back to the beginning of the line. Ministry is about people, not specific tasks. If you understand that, you're really going to understand this. Work, because of sin, is difficult. And if the work of ministry is about people, and work is difficult, what's oftentimes the result? People are also difficult. I don't want to do it. Agreed? Now, there are some people who we really enjoy spending time with, and there are others who are like, man, I hope God calls somebody else to work with them. Ministry is about people. The work of the ministry is about the thing that God is leading you to do to impact the people that he's put in front of you. Now, that looks different for all of us, right? God has specifically placed you where you are right now for a purpose. It's not on accident. He has placed you in the midst of certain people, not on accident, but on purpose. And he may be calling you to that this morning. Now, if you're going to step into that calling, and what Paul says in verse 1 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, then you need to train and prepare, right? You need to be equipped so that you can equip others. You need to train and prepare so that you can complete the work of the ministry. But who are the saints? You see, because Paul puts this specific phrasing in here to equip the saints... For the work of ministry. Now listen, ministry is about people, okay? It's not about specific tasks. Yes, there are tasks that come with the work of ministry, but the ministry is about the people, okay? But Paul is saying that these groups of individuals have been given to equip the saints. The saints are the believers. All the believers, men, women, who are following Jesus... These individuals have been tasked with a very specific responsibility to equip those saints to do the work of the ministry, right? So that doesn't mean that the responsibility is to equip every single individual to do ministry. Because not every individual is a saint. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers have been gifted to the church to train and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But here's where this ties together for all of us with this take-home truth. Every believer is uniquely called to be part of equipping others. Now listen to me. I didn't say every believer is uniquely called to be an apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. Every believer is uniquely called to be part of equipping others. And this is, this is how that happens, okay? We need to talk about stirring up towards growth. Look at the rest of the text here. We're almost done. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith. There's that word unity again. 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God, who is Jesus, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You remember a couple weeks ago we talked about sanctification, right? This process of growth that comes after the moment of salvation where you're justified, your eternal position is changed, right? Now you're in this process of sanctification where you're growing and being made more like Christ. That's what he's talking about here. That you're moving towards the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, speaking, sorry, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me read to you another verse here. Write this reference down. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works. You're like, that sounds pretty straightforward, right? Let's read verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day that he's talking about is the end. The end. Christ is coming back. It's the end. It's the day of Christ, right? And we need to, as saints, consider how to stir each other up in love towards good works. And we do that by not neglecting being together like some are already in the habit of doing. You see, even in the first century, people who started following Jesus were already like, man, I don't want to go to church today. See, it's not a new problem. It's a human problem, right? We find reasons to not gather together, but the scriptures tell us that when we gather together, that's where we're stirred up in love and challenged and moved towards good works. You see, we need to stir each other up. Now, let me go back to this take on truth. Every believer is uniquely called to be part of equipping others. And here's why I give you that take on truth. Because I believe this. That growth happens as you continue the path of spiritual growth with others. You see, discipleship is about helping each other follow Jesus. It's about helping each other, right? So even if God hasn't called you to be part of one of these particular groups... He may have gifted you in such a way that you can communicate with certain people. But he's called all of us to make disciples. That we need to be walking together, stirring others up towards growth through love. So that we're no longer children 
who are tossed to and fro by the waves of bad doctrine. You see, I want us to understand this. And he gave. He gave. God has given us a gift. You know what that gift is? Salvation in him and him alone. And in so doing, he's called certain people to do certain things in the body of Christ so that we grow together. See, 1 Corinthians 12. Write that down. You can read this this afternoon. 1 Corinthians 12. The first half of that chapter talks about different spiritual gifts. The way that God has gifted those who follow him, different giftings. But then the, the second half of that chapter, he talks about how there's one body. There's one body with many members, many parts. And if one of those parts isn't working properly, it affects the whole body, right? But if the body is functioning well and functioning together, it's for God's glory. Right? So we need each other. We need apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. We need different spiritual gifts that are evident in the church. We need accountability. We need to be together. Here's what I love about assessments like the APEST. Here's what I love about assessments like Strength Finders, the Enneagram. Right? Some of us have drank the Enneagram Kool-Aid. Here's what I love about those things. Is that they're helpful for us to understand how God has uniquely created us. But those assessments, listen to me, those assessments cannot become excuses to disobey God's commands. Those assessments cannot become more important than the Scriptures, right? They're helpful tools so that we're working together in unity. Let me summarize it by saying this. We need to be about unity, experiencing the beauty of unique giftings and callings while working together in ministry.